bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about the new four-letter word. <laughs> and don't worry, we're not going to be thrown up off the air, although on, on the Internet you can't. That's one of the joys of the Internet. You can't be anyway. But this four-letter word is race. And uh, apparently, um, over the in recent times, we seem to have become more politically correct and more frightened of talking about anything that has to do with race. Uh, other than, however, there are some exceptions, including my guest, who I will introduce, but one uh, exception is Survivor. Well, actually, it started out as being an exception, but even Survivor succumbed to um, thinking to, to political correctness. Uh, Survivor this season, as you probably know, decided to get more ratings, try to get more ratings by dividing their tribes along racial lines. And um, they divided into blacks, whites, Asians, and Latinos. And uh, this was supposed to be the answer to the fact that up until then, there really had been very few um, people of, of minorities on Survivor, and so they decided, I mean, that was the, that was the claim that that's why they were doing this, um, to sort of make up for that and uh, have everybody <laughs> have, I guess, uh, three-quarters of the contestants being uh, of the um, not being white, being minority races. And um, the idea, of course, was to get higher ratings, but then their first disappointment and surprise was when some of their sponsors pulled out including Procter and Gamble and General Motors. Of course, these sponsors denied that it had anything to do with race uh, or discrimination or division of races. Um, of course, you kind of wonder about these sponsors thinking about whether there were going to be t- tribes dividing along racial lines amongst their employees. And, um, well, we'll talk more about it. I won't continue with this story, but it just didn't turn out quite as... Um, <laughs> As Survivor expected it to, I won't continue until I introduce my guest so that he can comment on it as well. Now, my guest went further than Survivor, um, more controversial than what Survivor attempted to do, and he wrote a book that just came out. It's called Breeding Between the Lines. His name is Alon Ziv, and Alon, you... uh, Have you been? Have you? Do you have an unlisted phone number now? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think maybe I should. Um, You know, I've gotten a lot of great response from the book. uh, You know, just to help cue in the listeners, the full title of the book is "Breeding Between the Lines: Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive." So, I'm talking about race. I'm talking about sex. I'm talking about genetics, and it, it is a very controversial topic. And I've had a lot of great response from people. You know, a lot of people in the mixed community saying, "Wow, this," you know. I feel proud of my mixed heritage for the first time because I've you know, str- 
struggled with identity and, and prejudice and things like that. I've also had some very negative responses. Uh, anytime you talk about race, people get riled up. And uh, I, I launched my website at, as soon as the book came out, which was about a month ago, uh, breedingbetweenthelines.com, and I, I immediately got a huge surge in traffic, so I was very excited until I looked at the server logs and saw that all of this traffic was coming from various white supremacist websites. Uh, so I guess they heard about the book, they were very upset about it, and they were writing about it on their blogs and posting about it on their message boards, and just you know, horrible, hate-filled comments. They accused me of being the head of a conspiracy to destroy the white race. I mean, you know, really ridiculous stuff. But I, I, I did, did they buy many of the books? Well, that was, uh, that was my disappointment is that I was getting all this traffic, but I, I don't think that they were really uh, that eager uh, <laughs> to, to read it. the book. Now, let me just uh, give you a, a, a more uh, complete introduction so that people know <laughs> just who, who you think you are <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to have written this. Alan has studied the physical and social aspects of race missing, mixing for over three years. And he is a biology teacher at UCLA. He's been highly rated by his students. Um, he lectures regularly nationwide on the biology of interracial people. He's spoken in front of many different kinds of groups. Um, he studied at UCLA and at UC Berkeley, and he has a degree in psychobiology. So obviously um, he has used this knowledge to construct his theories. That's um, right. And, you know, it, it is, uh, you know, when people first hear uh, about my book and about the theory, it does sound a little out there, but I just want to reassure the listeners that everything I talk about is based on solid scientific research. So this is, you know, well-documented studies in the fields of, you know, genetics and anthropology and human behavior and that sort of thing. Well, now, before we get into, um, before, before we get into either Survivor and, of course, your book, um, I, I must ask, I read something in some of the um, public relations materials. I re- or no, I read it on the back of the book. Mm. Um, it says uh, that you are not interracial. Right. Now, I mean, that was, of course, my first assumption. But certainly, you know, one of the things on Dr. Carroll's couch, and I presume you haven't been a regular listener until now, uh-huh. um, one of the things that I do uh, generally with my guests, since it is uh, Dr. Carol's couch and you are on the couch essentially, so is your book, mm-hmm. um, I do ask people generally how they got involved in whatever topic it is that they're discussing. I mean, what if you yourself are not biracial or interracial, how is it that this was something that um, interested you enough, obviously, to write a whole book on it? Right. I mean, yeah, it is. it does seem that a lot of people assume that I'm interracial since uh, you know, I did write a book about the advantages of being interracial, and uh, in, in some ways, I think it gives me a little bit of credibility that I'm not. I'm not saying yeah. that I'm great. I'm just saying that you know there are other people who have advantages because of their mixed genes. Mm-hmm. I guess why did I write the book? Uh, you know, it's funny uh, since, since I'm on the couch, yeah. I can talk about my childhood. Exactly, um, that's exactly where I was going. Uh, I, I think in some ways, I've been preparing for this book my whole life. I, I grew up in Los Angeles and uh, had very liberal parents. Um, you know, I never had a curfew, and they always trusted me to do my schoolwork. Uh, but there was really, there was one rule that you know was clear: it should never be broken, and that was that I had to bring home a nice Jewish girl, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know a rule that a lot of you know Jewish people have. And uh, so I think from a very young age, I was kind of interested in this idea of you know how do you pick Mrs. Wright, or you know how do, you know, and sort of this interplay between dating people within your group versus dating people outside your group. 
Uh, and so I think I, I was always kind of interested in that. And then when I started studying biology, I became really interested in, in genetics and genetic diversity uh, and symmetry, which is a concept that I talk about in the book, um, which is uh, basically linked to all kinds of other things. So the, the more symmetrical you are, the more the left side of your body and the right side of your body correspond. The healthier you, healthier you are, the more attractive you are, the more athletic you are. And so then all these things sort of came together in my mind when I realized that, uh, you know, the, the more genetic diversity you have, the more symmetrical you are, and, you know, the more advantages you have in terms of, you know, sort of physical development and attractiveness. And so I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty interesting stuff. And I also got to delve a little bit into the biology of attraction. You know, why are we attracted to certain people and not others? And, you know, why do some people have a type that they're really drawn to? Where does that come from? Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's just fun stuff to talk about the biology of sex and attraction because that's something everyone can relate to and everyone is interested in. Yes, and we'll talk more about that. So um, so basically this started as a rebellion against your parents. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As, as, as an educated, um, uh, well-constructed rebellion against your right. parents. It's funny. I think my parents are torn because on the, on the one hand, uh, they do see it as a rebellion, but on the other hand, they're very proud that I, that I wrote a book. So. Mm-hmm, of course. But they, they've been very supportive. So, despite the rebellion. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it is, of course, all these personal things that um, that do motivate us to uh, to some of our greatest achievements. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Before we get get into all of those details that you uh, sort of gave us a tease on, and I do want to ask you about all of that, of course, um, let's talk about Survivor. I understand that you watched uh, the first episode of this current Survivor. What did you think about it? Uh, well, you know, I, I did watch the first episode. I, I haven't really watched Survivor since the first season, but I, I did hear all the buzz about race, and obviously I'm very interested in race, and so I, I checked it out. And, I, you know, I, I was pretty annoyed by the whole thing uh, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, one, I, I think it was obvious to everyone that this was a marketing gimmick. Uh, you know, so if you look at the, the ratings of Survivor over the years, they've been, you know, going down consistently, and so this was a way to try to drum up some interest. And, it worked. I mean, people did talk about it a lot on the Internet and on TV and on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that annoyed me was I felt that the producers of the show were really in denial about the fact that it was a marketing gimmick. And they kept kind of trying to aggrandize it, you know, and talk about, oh, this is consistent with the noble social experiment that Survivor is. And, you know, that really kind of frustrated me. This is not a noble social mm-hmm. experiment. And it's certainly nothing new. I mean, the, you know, our country tried this social experiment in the past, and it failed horribly. I mean, segregation is, is not uh, the road to better race relations. Yeah. It's, it's the road to resentment. Um, and so I was kind of frustrated about that. I also, you know, they're, in terms of my research, they're perpetuating this, this myth, which is that there are a small number of races, and they're pure in that, that they don't mix. Uh, you know, whereas interracial people who would cross from one tribe to another, uh, you know, are increasing in this country at a dramatic rate. And so the idea that, oh, we have an Asian tribe and a white tribe and they're separate and non-overlapping, I don't think really reflects uh, the direction that the country is going. Yes, because underneath all of that, there are really a lot uh, more subtleties in terms of um, races, even within, I mean, is that what you're saying, even within the Hispanic or the black or white race? Yeah, you know, and it, it's not so easy to categorize people. I mean, if you look at Sammy Sosa, you know, it, would he be in the Hispanic tribe or the black tribe? I mean, mm-hmm. no question that he's African-American, yet at the same time he speaks Spanish. He grew up in a Latin country. 
you know, what tribe does he go in? And also just the increasing numbers of interracial people. You know, what about half white and half Asian people or half black and mm-hmm. half Latino people? You know, what tribe do they identify with? Uh, none. There, you know, there's no place for them on Survivor, and I think it, it perpetuates this idea that there's no place for them in, in society. Yes. And also, um, the idea that, I mean, in Survivor, the usual Survivor, I mean, you do um, normally viewers identify with some of, of the people and uh, root for some of the people, and that, of course, promotes segregation and promotes the racial divisiveness if you're if you're rooting for what you're rooting for is a particular race, not just a particular group of people. Definitely. Well, we do need to take a break. My um, guest today is Alon Ziv. His book is called Breeding Between the Lines, Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive. I hope he has uh, made you scratch your head and think, what? What is he talking about? <laughs> Interracial people are, are, are symmetrical and sexier. What did I just hear? Well, stay tuned and you'll hear more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's premier talk radio station, VoiceAmerica.com. Join Patricia Raskin, host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on VoiceAmerica.com. At least 90% of sports success requires mental strength. And the greater the competitive level, the more critical it becomes to build that mental muscle. Tune into Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Jim Meyer, sports psychology coach, consultant, and author, offers practical, powerful, and positive mental game, tools, tips, and techniques. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental game with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! 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 <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 
5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about a four-letter word, race, with my guest, Alon Ziv. Um, his book is called Breeding Between the Lines, Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive. Obviously controversial, obviously not going along the um, politically, not caring about being politically correct, uh, flying in the face of it. We do have exceptions to this politically correct rule. Um, and uh, before the break, um, Alon was starting to give you sort of a peek into his book and his theories. And um, why don't you start from the beginning and and explain how you've built um, this sort of ladder that this theory uh, builds to. Sure. Uh, well, you know, as we were talking uh, during the break, and I was saying that, uh, you know, although the what I'm saying, that interracial people have these advantages, is kind of counterintuitive, it makes sense if you think about incest. You know, we, we all know that incest is is bad. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the feelings that incest evokes are, you know, very emotional and psychological. It just feels wrong. It feels uh, disgusting. Uh, but there's also a biological basis to that, which is that incest produces inferior children, uh, you know, and there's all these kind of urban legends about inbred communities and how uh, the people there, you know, have extra eyes and look funny, but, you know, uh, the message is clear, which is that incest leads to unhealthy, unattractive uh, children and people, uh, and that makes sense because, you know, we're, we're built on genetic diversity, and so if you lose a lot of your genetic diversity, you're just not equipped well to build your body the way it's supposed to be built. Um, well, could you explain that a little better as far as, or a, li- a little more detail as far as, um, you know, why it would be uh, that people in the same family, you know, how they would have similar genes and why that doesn't work? Right. So, uh, you know, people that you're closely related to have a lot of the same genes as you do. Uh, you and, you know, your sibling have 50% of the same genes because of the way you inherited them from your parents. You and your parents also have 50% of the same genes. So if you have uh, children with one of these people, you know, through close incest, your, your children are getting a lot of the same genes from both sides. They're getting, you know, gene A from you, and they're also getting gene A from uh, your family member. And so you're, you're getting a lot of the same copies of these genes, which is bad because when you're building something as complicated as a body, you want a diversity of genes so that you're well-equipped to handle all the different, you know, subtle trials and tribulations of development. And so the less diversity you have, uh, the, the more poorly equipped you are to build the body. And uh, I mentioned symmetry before the break. Symmetry is a really powerful concept in biology, and, uh, but it's very simple. It's just saying that, uh, you know, our bodies are supposed to be symmetrical, left-right symmetrical left side of your body should be a mirror image of your right side. And we all do a pretty good job. You know, we've got two arms and two legs and two eyes. Uh, but there's, you know, subtle deviations. You know, a lot of actors and actresses have a good side that they prefer to show in photos. So they're kind of recognizing that they're not perfectly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. But we know that, you know, the body is designed to be perfectly symmetrical. And so in order to get close to that ideal symmetry, you need to have a really good set of genes. And so people who are more symmetrical who have these good genes uh, are generally healthier, more attractive, as I mentioned, more athletic, more fertile. Uh, and so more symmetrical people and thus interracial people 
uh, are have these significant advantages because of their genetic diversity. So basically, well, wait, wait, go back to that leap. <laughs> right, right. Let me, so basically, we well, know why that, would it be that um, that more because that is counterintuitive. Why would it be that interracial people would? Well, first of all, why is it that uh, that symmetry is is produced by more diverse genes? Right. So I touched on that a little bit. I mean, basically, as I mentioned, development is, is a really complicated thing. I mean, well, yes, but I mean, you would think, from what you were saying, you would think that, I mean, just that people with, that the more similar genes, the more it kind of seems to go with, with symmetry. Do you know what I, I mean? Yes, that is one of the, the trickiest parts of the theory, is that if your genes are symmetrical, then your body is not symmetrical. Right. Uh, but basically, uh, it, it's, it's like, you know, if you're building a building, and I use this analogy in, in the book, uh, you know, and you have all these workers. You don't want all your workers to have the same skills uh, because then you're, you're sort of limited in what you can do. If all of your workers have different skills, then, you know, you're, you're, you're much better equipped to deal with a, with a variety of challenges uh, during construction. And it's the same thing with the body. The more different genes you have, the better equipped you are to handle various conditions and thus build the body as it should be built, which is symmetrically. Uh-huh. So not only in terms of um, sort of more complicated processes, how you interact with the world or, um, or your, the health of your digestive system or something like that, but literally just the symmetry of the body. The, the, um... Now, this is all, this, I, I presume, is all founded in science. That's right. That's right. There's a, you know, symmetry is a big area of research in biology. Uh, because, as you mentioned, you know, it, it covers a broad range of things. You know, uh, building a more symmetrical body doesn't seem, on the face of it, to tell you anything about the health of your digestive system. Right. But they are linked, because if you have a good set of genes, then you'll build a symmetrical body. And because you have a good set of genes, you'll probably have a good digestive system also. And so well, since when we look at someone, we can't tell how good their genes are. We use symmetry as a way to kind of peek at their at their genes. But now, isn't this sort of a, I mean, I hadn't really thought of this when I was reading the book, but um, isn't this sort of a dangerous potential? I mean, on the one hand, um, the idea of reading between the lines and being, you know, more tolerant and, and recognizing um, uh, diversity is good and all that, that's one, that's, you know, you would think that that's a, a sort of a pro-society uh um, positive kind of uh, concept. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, though, isn't it a little dangerous to let too many people know that um, that, that symmetry, the symmetry of your face and your body, um, it determines or or ref- reflects? I shouldn't say determines, but is reflective of all these uh, of what you were just saying: your your general health and, and vigor and strength, and because. Because even though people, you know, consciously, most people who don't study biology are not really uh, consciously aware of that. We may uh, unconsciously, and you do go into that, and you can you can go into that um, unconsciously, are, are attracted more to those people and all of that. But but I mean, you know, there could be sort of a new um, uh, discrimination uh, in a sense of people looking for symmetry in other people and, and sort of discarding people who aren't symmetric. Right. I mean, you make a good point. Um, but, I, but I think you also kind of touched on my answer, which is that people are already doing that. And as, as you mentioned, you know, 
we're not that good at detecting symmetry consciously. Like when I look at people, they all seem pretty symmetrical. But on a subconscious level, we are able to uh, see that symmetry and respond to it accordingly. I mean, it's one thing to say that, oh, more symmetrical people are more attractive. But the, the data behind that assertion are fascinating. I mean, it's not just a question of, you know, people rating photographs in a lab, but studies have shown that more symmetrical men lose their virginity three to four years earlier uh, than more lopsided men. And they have two to three times as many sexual partners over their lifetime. So uh, it, it seems like, uh, you know, you're worried that the book will kind of give symmetrical people an advantage, but yeah. they, they already have that advantage in the real world. And, you know, they're, they're more attractive. We studied, Other studies have shown uh, that, you know, more attractive people make more money uh, and are, are more likely to get hired and things like that. And so there already is this bias. I'm just trying to, you know, sort of shed some light on it so people understand, you know, well, where is this coming from? Why am I so drawn to this person? Um, I think. But now, ex- isn't that sort of, um, well, hmm. I, I mean, I guess I was going to say, isn't that sort of superficial? But then you would say, well, no, because it reflects all these other things that are really more, more make these people beneficial partners, especially uh, for reproduction. Exactly. I mean, I think that's, you know, evolution steers us in, in, in a smart direction generally, and so that's what it's done here. I mean, on the one hand, it does seem superficial to be attracted to someone who's more symmetrical. But on the other hand, you know, if they really are healthier, uh, then that's a good trait. You want a healthy partner. Uh, you want someone who's going to give good genes to your, to your kids, and you want someone who's going to be around. You know, if you, if, you know on, a, on a biological level, you know that they're more likely to survive. Yeah, that's very attractive. Well, but what if, I mean, in the example that you were giving about more symmetrical men losing their virginity faster or having more sexual partners, what if symmetry, or or any other example, what if symmetry was also linked to some other quality that made whatever it is, you know, the trait happen, like... um, Higher testosterone. <laughs> right. Well, and, and it, you know that there are links like that. Um, and again, you know, high high testosterone is, is an attractive trait that's found in men that you know women are often drawn to. Um, just as high estrogen is an attractive trait in women, and we look for all kinds of clues. And symmetry is one of those clues. There are other clues as well. Uh, you know, if you look at cover models, a lot of times they have very full lips and a very small chin, which are both hallmarks of high estrogen levels which is also associated with fertility and health and things like that. And so, again, it's, it's weird to think of these rules of attraction as being based in biology because it sort of takes the fun out of it a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, but it's also interesting to know, you know, wh- why is that? You know, I think we, we, it's such a fundamental thing that we rarely question it. But there are rules, there are reasons uh, why we're attracted to certain people and not others. Now, definitely some things are, are cultural and there's, you know, things that go in and out of fashion. But there are other things that are more fundamental, and symmetry is one of them. Well, what about, though, um, I mean, where do other qualities come into play? I mean, they must uh, sort of be mitigating factors, uh, like like education or intelligence or sense of humor or personality. Or, oh, I mean, sure. I mean, now, not all of these... <laughs> God. <laughs> no, that's, that's my cell phone <laughs> that I'll put away. Um not all of these people, I mean, symmetry isn't connected to all of these that, well, there's the bell. Um, we'll have to take this up because I kind of, that's the question I want to ask you. Symmetry yeah, that can't is a good question and we can talk about it after All right. <laughs> all right. Why don't we take a break? Um, but this is getting more interesting than uh, 
this is a real, I'm not saying that I, you know, obviously totally agree with it, with this premise or with the conclusion, I guess, but um, it's a very, very interesting uh, question to ponder, and I must say that your book is very entertaining in that regard. Well, thank you. So when we come back, we'll uh, be back with my guest, Alon Ziv, with a book that we're talking about is Breeding Between the Lines, Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive. So stay tuned. We're uh, right in the thick of battle here. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The Internet's premier talk radio station, voiceamerica.com. Ever wonder what are the favorite travel destinations of the Hollywood jet set? Where do celebrities like to go when they aren't walking the red carpet? Tune in to Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with President of Traveris, David Manning, and Lisa O'Hurley, golf aficionado and wife of actor John O'Hurley. On Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa talk with well-known actors, sports celebrities, and entertainment insiders to find out about their favorite travel destinations and what they recommend. On Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa also offer up feature vacations each week and last-minute deals for your next getaway. Find out what's new and exciting in the travel industry, as well as how to raise money for your nonprofit organizations while enjoying a wonderful vacation. Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with David Manning and Lisa O'Hurley broadcasts each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, your inside look into celebrities and travel. The Woman MVP Who Sets You Free with host, entrepreneur, author, motivational speaker, corporate executive, philanthropist, wife, and mother, Luann Mitchell-Halter is an exciting and provocative look at the real world with real exciting guests and real stories of triumph and professionalism with a dash of spice sharing recipes for a better world on all the playing fields of life. Join Luann Mitchell-Halter as she and her guests uncover and expose us to our abilities to create our very own Big League MVP, My Victory Plan, Potential for Greatness. The Woman MVP Who Sets You Free with Luann Mitchell-Halter broadcasts each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. The Woman MVP Who Sets You Free. It's time to get off the bleachers, play the game of life, and be the MVP. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about uh, the four-letter word, race, with someone who um, has gone against political correctness. His name is Alon Ziv. The book is Breeding Between the Lines, Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive. 
And that's what we were debating right before <laughs> the break. So that's right. And so you know, let's I think continue. You, you brought up a, a good point. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes, you know, when we focus on biology, it can seem a little bit cold or even Machiavellian. And, and I, I talk about this in the final chapter of the book, you know, where I ask, you know, are we just gene machines? And, and the answer is no. Like, biology is fascinating and it's a huge uh, influence on us and, and the choices that we make in terms of who we're attracted to and, uh, you know, who we end up with. But it's not the only factor. So, you know, there are certainly, we're, we're not just genes. You know, that, that's what makes humans so interesting uh, is that we, we have this complicated psychology and emotions and things like that. And uh, so I think that, uh, you know, psychology plays a big role in, in who we're attracted to. And we're drawn not to just people who have good genes, but people who we, you know, share a common value system with and get along with and who makes us laugh. I mean, you know, there's no gene for being funny. Uh, so it, it's not just biology, but with that said, uh, biology is a really strong uh, factor. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I've been on a lot of dates uh, with, with girls where, you know, on paper they seem great and they're smart and they're funny, but, you know, there's no zing. And I think a lot of times biology can help explain the zing. Well, you know, I was just going to ask you, actually, um, as you were doing your research and writing this book, I mean, you must have sort of used yourself as a kind of experiment. I mean, do you, before you wrote the book or during the time, did you, I mean, is that something that you noticed in yourself that that you were attracted to particularly symmetrical or interracial women? Well, it's, you know, again, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to measure symmetry consciously, but I did find that, uh, you know, as I was doing research and I, I was giving talks in different parts of the country, a lot of times I gave talks uh, for uh, interracial organizations, you know, I thought this is something that's interesting to them. I'm talking about their biology, and a lot of college campuses have, uh, you know, like a like a multiracial club for people who mm. are mixed race, or a Hapa club for people who are half Asian and half white. And uh, so I'd go to these clubs, and often as I was talking, I was struck that just, oh, this is a really good looking crowd, <laughs> you know. So I, I, d- I did definitely notice uh, some some very attractive uh, biracial people during my research. But again, I mean, you know, it's it's. Uh, it's funny because a lot of people email me and say, you are so right, you know, my girlfriend is biracial and she's so pretty, or, oh, my, I know this guy who's mixed and he's so attractive. But I also get people coming up to me and saying, I don't know about your theory because I know this one person who's kind of funny looking uh-huh. who's mixed. So, you know, again, there are no guarantees, and obviously there are many people who are not mixed who are, are beautiful and, and handsome. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it can be a powerful factor. I mean, yes, I guess the distinction is you're, you're mainly saying that the the increased symmetry is what makes someone attractive, and right. the the fact the reason why someone who is biracial would have more increased symmetry, just to kind of get back to that, is because they would have more divergent genes. Who would? I mean, your your um, metaphor of the fact that the the people who are the people. <laughs> Um, the little beings who are creating the body, um, that the more diverse they are in their skills, the better the body they can build is a very good metaphor. Oh, thanks. So you're saying that the people who are biracial have more diverse workers, essentially, building their body. That's exactly right. And then they have the more symmetrical body as a result, and, uh, you know, we're, we're all drawn to that. See, that, yeah, that, that part is... Now, what have you had... Um, you know, first of all, I see, I look at all of this psychologically, um, but have you had uh, biologists who have dis- uh, debated you or disagreed with your findings or 
Well, um, you know, as, as I said, symmetry is, is, is a well-accepted uh, hallmark of, yeah. you know, kind of good genes. The, the one area where a lot of scientists disagree is, is in talking about race. And, you know, I, I, I discussed this in the book, you know, that in science, I think maybe even more than in a regular society, race is a dirty word, mm. uh, is definitely a four-letter word. And I think a lot of it is historical. Uh, you know, science and race have a pretty ugly history where scientists, you know, in the past, you know, justified racism using science or tried to prove that one race was superior to another. Uh, and so I think now scientists are, are afraid to even go near race uh, because, you know, of, the, of these negative things that happened in the past. Uh, and so I think it's the racial aspect that uh, makes a lot of scientists nervous. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think even in the scientific community, we're starting to see a backlash against political correctness. And, you know, uh, the more we use genetics to understand, uh, you know, the evolution of people and how we came out of Africa and spread throughout the world, uh, the more clear it is that, you know, racial differences are real and that's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, and the more we talk about it, the less scary it is. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that, you know, and you, you, you've touched on this several times, that, you know, here we are two generations after the civil rights movement. We seem to be more afraid to talk about race than ever. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a dirty concept that we just want to avoid it. Uh, but that's, you know, that's not going to lead to good race relations, is sweeping it under the rug. Yes, yes. I was just listening to a talk show yesterday um, where in Los Angeles uh, there's a, a big um, problem with emergency room. Well, sure, it's not just Los Angeles, but I think Los Angeles is one of the places where it's um, worse than a lot of other places, where emergency rooms are uh, are very overcrowded. People come without insurance, and... Um, and uh, because of that, because emergency rooms, many emergency rooms can't afford to just keep giving out free care, a lot of sure. emergency rooms have closed. And the person was making the point that um, in this, uh, I don't know, it was some big discussion or some paper or something or other where um, some sort of report on this situation, it they left out the fact that it was certain races that were more uh, likely to come to emergency rooms and to come without insurance mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. and to uh, overpopulate the system. And they were saying, you know, how, because we don't want to talk about uh, how different races um, can have, be causing certain problems in society that was left out, and yet that was important because you can't find a solution to the problem unless you, you know, get into it more deeply and recognize where what the culture has to do with it and and what you can do about that. So, you know, just yesterday I was reminded of of um, just how many another example of where this comes into play. But you said something that I wanted to go back to because uh, I read this in in your book about. Um, all races coming from the sub-Sahara, right? And could you um, talk about how how we know that, and and how the races have sort of, you know, how if we all came from that one place, how did all these different races develop in the first place? Sure. Um, well, you know, the, nothing is is conclusive in this, uh, but it seems like archaeologists and uh, geneticists are sort of coming to an agreement that it does seem most likely. Uh, that all humans, all modern humans, are descended from uh, a group that originated in sub-Saharan Africa, and then uh, part of that group, a subset, split off and, and left Africa, you know, traveled north, and then populated the rest of the world. Uh, and so 
I mean, basically, you just have you know a small group splitting off, and then they they travel uh, north, and then you know they settle in a new location, and then maybe a, a subset of that group splits off. And uh, over time, and we're talking about over you know fifty to one hundred thousand years, it's a lot of generations. People adapt to their environment, uh, and you know we if we originated in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, you know it seems reasonable that uh, we had dark all had dark skin at one point. But if you're living in northern Europe where it's it's very cold and uh, there's not a lot of sunlight, then the dark skin can be uh, a detriment because you need to absorb sunlight in order to create vitamin D. This is why uh, milk has vitamin D and why when people have uh, newborns, a lot of times they're encouraged to play with them in the sun a little bit every day because we need sunlight in order to create vitamin D. Um, and so, you know, it then, you know, maybe light skin was favored in that population, and so they gradually lost their dark skin. And so just by being separate and living in different environments, uh, you know, these racial differences kind of evolved over time, and genetic differences evolved with them. Uh, and so now, fast forward to today's world, we have these different groups. They look different. They're genetically different on, in, in some ways. Uh, and uh, when two people of these different groups, you know, get married and have kids, then they're, they're bringing... Uh, those different genes together, uh, and the kids have that genetic diversity and that symmetry and all the good stuff that goes along with it. And the the the, the fact that the um, the way that the genes change themselves in response to I mean, the survival of the fittest is essentially exactly what you're right yeah. talking about. Um, but it's and the fittest are the ones with uh, genes that sort of came came to be as a, a Adaptation to the environment, and also as um, I guess in some cases, just uh, spuriously, just came sure, just came through about. You know, small population size and just kind of random uh, forces. And you know, in a lot of cases, these are just a, a historical holdover. I mean, you know, the world is such a small place now that you know a lot of people don't live in the world that or in the environment that they were adapted to. Uh, you know, now we have people with dark skin living, uh, you know, very far north, and people with light skin living uh, close to the equator. And uh, so people aren't necessarily living in, in the environment in which they're perfectly adapted, but now that we have technology, we don't need that as much anymore. Uh, you know, Eskimos have sort of short, round bodies, which are ideal for conserving heat. It's very cold where Eskimos live, but now you can get your Gore-Tex parka, and, you know, anyone can live in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, through technology, you know it, it's it's very interesting because it's also paradoxical in a way. You know, since since essentially we came from the originally the same genes or similar genes anyway, and uh, that's true. So it's sort of a, a splitting off and now a coming back together. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we'll all come back together after the break. My guest today is Alan Ziv. His book is Breeding Between the Lines, Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive. And you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Stay tuned for a bit more controversy after the break. The Authority and Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Live in the Green Life with Kim Carlson. 
Echopreneur, author, and green living maven brings you an upbeat, fun exploration of the doables of living a more earth-friendly life. Kim cuts through the noise and urban myth of green do's and don'ts and shows that it is possible to live green easily. From hip organic weddings to exotic echo travel to healthy personal care products. Get the most current trends and tips from the experts for living a more planet-friendly and human lifestyle. Live in the green life with Kim Carlson. Broadcast each Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on The Voice America channel. Live in the green life for a human, healthy, and planet-friendly lifestyle. Albert Einstein once said, Nothing happens until something moves. Will your movement towards realizing a dream, making a long-lasting change to your life, or simply putting a daily smile on your face is just a click away. Tune into Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney and Free Your Mind. Open your heart and ignite action in your life. Host and commander in change, empowerment coach, and international speaker, Scott Chesney shares his insights to making the most out of your daily lives. Scott interviews people who are maximizing their lives, the most recognizable transformationalists and leaders around the world, as well as those hometown heroes that move, touch, and inspire the best in all of us. Stay tuned into Maximizing Life for Scott's one-on-one coaching with callers. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney broadcasts each Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney, inspiring you to live life with passion, purpose, and limitless potential. Wine and Women is not your boring wine geek show. It is rather a fresh, fast-paced approach featuring interesting stories and entertaining segments about wine and wine-related topics through a warm and chatty format that will appeal especially to women, men optional. Hosted by wine connoisseurs and luxury lifestyle experts, Julie Brosterman, Lisa Kring, Sharon Borston, and Jeanette Oku, Wine and Women takes listeners to Napa, Sonoma, and other wine regions worldwide to meet the best as well as the newest winemakers, to restaurants to meet top chefs and sommeliers, to wine-themed spas, wine country getaways, even into supermarket wine aisles where Women and Wine Angels swoops down and helps shoppers to get their wine picks and more. Women and Wine broadcasts each Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Women and Wine, enjoying life one sip at a time. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about breathing between the lines, why interracial people are healthier and more attractive with the author, Alon Ziv, um, kind of controversial, talking about uh, not being politically incorrect, which I love to do. <laughs> um you know, actually, I mean, there's so many ways, more things that we can talk about with this. One of the things that it makes me think of is, I remember growing up uh, as a teenager, people would say, um, uh, like, you know, the beauty advice, <laughs> the latest beauty advice would be, don't part your hair in the center, because that makes it more obvious um, whether your face is symmetrical or not. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, I guess that those people were, were ahead of the curve. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't think they were thinking about the whole thing in as, in as great a depth as you. You know, right, it was right. like uh, um, 17 or something, you know, mm-hmm. some women's magazines. But 
but um, just sort of from a, a an aesthetic viewpoint that someone had picked that up. Yeah, and I think it's something that we've realized on some level for a while. I mean, if you look at, you know, people get braces to correct their teeth and, you know, everyone wants a, a more symmetrical smile and, uh, you know, when people have plastic surgery, I, I think there's a there's a focus on making sure the result is very symmetrical. So it's it's, it's definitely something that, that people uh, are aware of. And there's actually one, one more study about symmetry that I wanted to share that people always seem to get a kick out of. And that's, uh, you know, I already mentioned that more symmetrical men uh, lose their virginity earlier and have more sexual partners, but there was this really dramatic study at the University of New Mexico a few years ago where they recruited uh, undergraduate couples and uh, had them fill out detailed questionnaires about their sex lives, and they measured both people, for the man and the woman, for symmetry and ran all kinds of analyses. And they found that the more symmetrical the man was, the more likely the woman was to orgasm during sex. It's really surprising finding, and even more surprising, no other factor was a predictor of her likelihood mm-hmm. to orgasm. It didn't matter how long they'd been together or how much they loved each other or, for those who are cynical, uh, you know, his, his earning potential. Size. Oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> his size. Right, right. I, I was even more cynical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the more symmetrical he was, the more likely she was uh, to orgasm when, when they had sex. Uh, and uh, it's very surprising, although there's a, a, a theoretical explanation, which is that, uh, uh, you know, female orgasm increases the chance of conception. And I've already pointed out that, you know, symmetrical men have good genes. So on some level, the woman's body is saying, hey, this guy's got good genes. I want those genes for my baby, and so I'm going to try and help his sperm, you know, reach the finish line, reach reach my egg. And, uh, you know, they may be using a condom or she may be on the pill. You know, her body doesn't, uh, is, isn't, you know, I think aware of the latest technological tricks that we use to prevent pregnancy. But on some level, her body's thinking, wow, this guy's got good genes and I want those. Uh, and so the orgasm kind of increases the chances that uh, that his genes can, can make it to the egg. So it's, it's kind of a, a surprising result. And I, and I think it kind of fits in with the whole theme of reading between the lines, which is, you know, how biology can influence our lives in surprising ways. Uh, certainly she's not consciously thinking any of that, yeah. I hope. Um, but uh, on some level, that's that's the logic that's taking place. Yes, it really is fascinating. I mean, I wonder if they... I mean, did they t- test for a lot of other factors? Yeah, they did. I mean, the, the list of variables was, was long, and there were, you know, physical uh, factors they looked at, emotional ones, and uh, things like that. And, and uh, symmetry was the only one that, that predicted uh, the likelihood of the orgasm. That is really interesting. Um, you know, I'm aware of our time being getting shorter. Just, I wanted you to close out by talking about the population, um, what's happening to our population. Right. Well, uh, as I mentioned when we were talking about Survivor, I, I, you know, I don't think that the Survivor tribe uh, distribution really accurately represents uh, the America of today, and it certainly doesn't represent the America of tomorrow. Uh, interracial people are still a pretty small uh, segment of the population. Uh, in the 2000 census, 2.4% of Americans uh, checked more than one box uh, for the race category. Interestingly, this was the first time they even had that choice. In 1990, you had to choose one. So mm. that change in itself is kind of reflecting that you know this is a, this is a group that you know needs to be counted. Um, and there but, are probably fewer people checking two boxes than actually exist. Exactly because they, they feel there's a stigma to it. Sure, sure. There's a stigma, and often people identify with one group more than another, so they'll just check mm. that one. So yeah, the numbers may be even higher, and also the numbers are, are you know spread out over time. 
uh, you know, younger Americans were far more likely uh, to be interracial uh, than older Americans. Uh, Americans under the age of 18 were, were more than twice as likely uh, to be mixed uh, than older Americans. So definitely, you know, it's, it's becoming more accepted. Uh, it's happening more in the current generation than in the past generation. And that's not surprising. I mean, before 1967, it was illegal to marry someone of a different race in uh, 23 states. Mm. And uh, 1967 was not that long ago. So, uh, you know, I think the, mm. the country is, is definitely becoming more legally and socially accepting uh, of interracial couples and interracial people. And we're seeing that reflected uh, in the census statistics where, you know, younger people are more than twice as likely to be mixed. And I, I think that, that trend is just going to continue, especially as, uh, you know, more Americans are living in cities, uh, more Americans are living in big cities uh, that are, you know, very cosmopolitan. And, uh, you know, the, the more you're around other people and people of different races, the more you see them, just the, the more they become people. And I think the more likely that you're going to, you know, be attracted to them and, uh, you know, possibly end up with them. You know, I talk about some psychological studies in the book about how at a very young age we sort of build this blueprint of what our future mate is going to look like. Um, and often it's based on the people that we grow up around. So if you grow up in a community with only white people, uh, then, you know, often you're only going to be attracted to white people when uh, you're an adult. But, you know, I think the more uh, people of different races you see when you're very young, maybe the more broad your mate blueprint will be and the more equal opportunity of a dater you'll be later on in life. Yes, because you're not just looking at their race, but you're looking at um, other factors. The closer that you work with them or, or live with them in a dorm or whatever, um, the more you're able to see past whatever it was that might have frightened you or um, confused you or you know made you feel that they were strange, and the more you appreciate all these different aspects of them Definitely. and uh, see them as potential potential mates. And I think just the more opportunities you have to, right. uh, to you know, meet people of different races. And, and so I, I think it's not going to happen everywhere at the same time, and the census statistics kind of reflect that, that it's far more common in big cities, uh, far more common in big cities in the West than in the East, I think, because cities in the West are newer. They don't really have the historical baggage of segregation. So the cities are, are usually a little more uh, mixed up as far as where people live and how much they interact with people of other races. And the the, the um, percentages in general, um, how how you see that in the future, not just of mixed races, but of um, the percentages even of, of, I don't want to say pure races, but not mixed races, um, that that's going to be changing in the future. Definitely. I mean, we, we, we're already seeing a lot of those changes. I mean, the white majority is, is less of a majority than it's ever been. Uh, and in states like California, is no longer a majority. Uh, you know, California is a state without a majority. It just has several large minorities. Um, and so I think we're going to see an increasing trend uh, towards that. And as I mentioned, just, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more mixing. I think we're on the cusp of a mixed-race explosion where, uh, you know, the majority of Americans are now living in big cities where they have, you know, the opportunity and often uh, the attraction uh, to date people of, uh, of other races. And so I think we're we're really sort of at the beginning of that. And so I think in the next census we're going to see you know, a much uh, larger increase in the mixed population. Well, I think uh, your book is going to be very timely then. Um, it should be, it should be uh, in places where people can, can 
if they still have parents, and, and there certainly are many, regardless of these changes, yes, we're changing, but, you know, there still are large percentages of families that feel more comfortable saying to their um other family members who aren't married yet, you know, expecting them to bring home someone of the same general background. Sure. Um, so this should be popular with people who are bringing home someone, <laughs> someone different, um, as, to give to their to their families. Right. Yeah, and I uh, hope I hope it can help uh, increase tolerance uh, yes. from those kind of parents. Absolutely. Well, again, the book is Breathing Between the Lines: Why Interracial People Are Healthier and More Attractive. The author is Alan Ziv. Z-I-V, and why don't you give us the uh, website? All right, so you can learn a little more about the book and read an excerpt at breedingbetweenthelines.com, and you can buy it wherever books are sold, Borders, Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, all those good places. Yes, it's where all books generally are, but if you uh, go to the website, breeding, it's breeding between the lines, B-R-E-E-D-I-N-G, between the lines, and uh, you'll find out more about uh, Alan Ziv and about the book. I'm sure... Whether you agree or not with uh, some of these ideas, certainly it must have sparked your interest and curiosity and um, make you want to know more. And it is written, but what I liked was it's not written like a biology book. It's written very uh, with humorous anecdotes and metaphors and, and just very, very uh, readable and enjoyable. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I definitely wanted to uh, you know base it in science but make it interesting to read. Yeah. I guess that this is what what our science book should have been should have been like. <laughs> right, right. Science can be fun. <laughs> yes, right. Well, thank you again, Alon Ziv, for joining me, Dr. Carol's Couch, and thank you all for joining me and uh, my guest today. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 